Good morning. Isn't it beautiful out? Yes. A few announcements to make this morning. We have our new web cards that are available. We have made lots of them for our friends around the world who would like to have some in their community. If you, you email us with a mailing address, we will mail these for free to anyone in the world who would like some of these to share. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will enlighten our minds, fill our hearts with your love and grace and goodness, and help our vision be focused on the purpose you would have for this class to serve. May we uh, develop our, our, our mission and focus that we can take a, a true message about you to the world that will lighten this world and change hearts and minds and free people from fears and insecurities and ultimately that we can see you coming soon. Give us uh, wisdom to study this morning that all of our conversations will glorify you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number four uh, in our quarterly, Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the title this week is The Coat of Different Colors. Somebody read for us the first two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson that begins the seed. The seed, so to speak, of this whole story began in Genesis 29 with Jacob and his wives, the concubines. One father four mothers, and about a dozen children between them. One didn't need to be a prophet to know beforehand what a dysfunctional and dismal family this would turn out to be. How much better had Jacob followed the earliest archetype example, the one from Eden, one husband, one wife, period. This was the ideal model for all homes, for all times. How many believe it was wrong for Jacob to take more than one wife? How many think Jacob did not do wrong by taking more than one wife? No hands, no takers on that one. Right. Well, it's, I think it seems pretty obvious that J- Jacob probably made a mistake there with the concubines, but let's, let's talk about the other. He didn't take the Did Jacob do wrong in taking Rachel as his wife? Well, Rachel was the one who probably took wrong in because Leah was his first wife. Yeah, we're talking about Jacob. Did Jacob do wrong in taking Rachel as his wife? What do you think he should have done after the deception practiced upon him? You understand the wedding in those days, the wives are completely, you know, that whole burqa thing? You know what you know what a burqa is, right? Did you can't, she not talk or anything during the, I mean, did he not recognize the voice of Rachel as opposed to Leah? Would you consider, put yourself in uh, Jacob's shoes for a moment. Now, do, would you consider Jacob, the morning after, wakes up, whoa. Would you consider Jacob married to Leah? Would marriage require informed consent to be considered valid? Any time in history. In God's eyes, in God's eyes. For God to consider someone married, uh, does it require informed consent? Does the person have to, or is marriage just sexual relations with someone? If you have sex, then you're married. Yes. He may not have considered himself married to her, but he had he felt an obligation for her because now she was... Well, we're getting to that point, Lisa. We're not quite there yet. Okay? We're getting there. The question we're asking right now is, do you think, do you think the next morning he woke up, the day of the ceremony, is Jacob committing himself to be the husband of Leah? No. Is he accepting Leah as his wife? No. Yes? So when he's standing before God and witnesses and promising himself whatever forms they go through in rituals, was he promising himself to be the husband to Leah? No. no. 
So when he wakes up the next morning, should he consider himself married to Leah? Would you? Think about it, guys. Women, the person you're marrying, the person you went to the ceremony, your heart's for, you work seven years for, you're so joyful to be, and the next day, it's not that person. Would you consider yourself married to that person? Would you be mad? Would you be outraged? Yeah. Yes. We're going to get there, Tina. (laughs) Just seems to me like that uh, we're forgetting the culture in which this happened. And we're getting there. We're about to talk about the culture. Okay. Yes. Because that makes quite a bit of difference. Yeah, tell me what, what your thoughts on the culture are. How does the culture make a difference? Well, the culture would be there that um, you're not just marrying a wife. You're marrying a family. You're marrying a tribe. And so, in other words, it's much more complicated than I think it would be in our culture today. Would it still require, though, informed consent? Generally, do the people, do the, especially for the men, I understand the women often didn't get much choice in the matter, but for the men, was it traditionally in the culture of the day that the man had a choice and an understanding of who was going to be his wife? Of who was going to be, but yeah. consent necessarily. Not consent on the part of the wife. <laughs> well, not even, but not even with the men. There were times when parents... Mm-hmm. Tried the marriage just before they even knew each other. Pardon? In arranged weddings, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Was that was that the case in Jacob's situation? Is Jacob's situation fallen an arranged marriage by his parents? No. No. He could have gotten an element, but she would have been ruined. Oh, see, this is where we're getting now. This is where we're getting. Thank you. So, you wake up the next morning. You're in Jacob's shoes. You uh, worked seven years. You went into the ma- marriage expecting to marry. Rachel, you wake up the next day, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. You don't consider yourself married. What are your options at this point? Should he have returned her slightly used? (laughs) 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 This is the point of the culture, though. What would have happened to Leah if he would have not kept her as his wife. It's just like she could not have found another husband. Could she have ever found another husband, really? It's like Bathsheba. She probably couldn't have anywhere. You remember Bathsheba. Right. David took Bathsheba. That's right. To take care of her. This is the same same type thing. In this culture, she would have had no standing. She would have been an outcast. Yes, go ahead. But in this culture, he would have known he could not marry Rachel without Leah being married. So he was deluding himself into expecting that he was marrying Rachel. That's what the... Um, what the father said as an excuse, I don't know that we've actually documented from history that only the older sisters had to be married first. I mean, that's what the father says as an excuse to justify what he did to Jacob. In our family, in our culture, we don't marry the younger until the older. I'm not convinced that's true in, in, in the historical setting. I would have to research that. I think it's the father's um, rationalization for what he did to Jacob. But I understand that's, that's, that's a possibility. It might be true, but I, I, I'm really skeptical that, that in all families they, they went by the age marrying first. I think there were a lot of other reasons people got married. But I, I haven't researched it to know, so you, you may be right. Yes, Russell. My question was, why was Jacob there in the first place? I mean, he, he ended up there because of, because of his own deception. And, oh. Uh, his own so is this he's running away from a brother he thought who he thought wanted to kill him. So he deceived his his family you know, in a very very trying to educate him and guide him along a pathway uh, of you know, enlightening him that 
certain things have certain consequences. So is this is this is this karma? <laughs> is this comeuppance? Is this uh, you know you you reap what you sow? You sow deception, so you get deceived. Yes. What was Laban's motivation in this? Seven years of service from him. Well, he knew his oldest daughter was uh, unattractive, and, and like the lady in front said, probably wouldn't have gotten married in the first place. So he, he had a he had a uh, an agenda to get her taken care of. Yeah. Don't you think that if uh, if it was the culture that the older should have been uh, married first, that, that when Jacob made the deal with Laban, that Laban should have said, yeah, that's a great deal, but I can't do it because we have to wait for her to get married? Yes, he should have done that. Yeah. Well, I think there might have been a deeper meaning than that because if you read in there, everything that Jacob did prospered. And it benefited him having him there who knows, maybe there was a selfish motive in there too. I think that's a great point. And what we're getting at here is the lesson is making the situation that J- Jacob made a terrible mistake in having more than one wife. And I'm trying to make the point that, that Jacob didn't choose initially to go down the path of polygamy. He wanted one wife. And he was deceived into having somebody in his marriage bed that he never even chose to be in his marriage bed. And then... Would we, would we suggest that he should have just stayed married to Leah for the rest of his life? And that was it. Some might, yes. But from Leah came Jesus. That's true. The genealogy. Judah, right? Yeah. Tribe of Judah. Well, he's not that bad. He should have taken the concubines. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> that, that's another question, isn't it? So, but, but back to the question. So, so did Jacob have what? wonder what they did with Rachel during the wedding. He'd have been stunned up there getting married and looking out to see her in the... I thought that. I thought by myself. Do you think she was complicit and went along um, because of you know, the conditioning of women to submit to the authority of the fathers and the fathers had to do it so you're just conditioned? Did she have more of a, a uh, spunky spirit and she was not going to go along because this was the man that's worked for her for seven years and so dad took the servants and had her taken out somewhere and tied up for the, for the ceremony? Um, you know, I mean, we, we, it doesn't tell us, does it? Yeah, I mean, it's, but I've thought of that. That's a good question, yes. There had to be some kind of altered consciousness on Jacob's part, too, because the burqa did come off. <laughs> yeah, b- but after dark. Have you, ever, have you ever been out? I wouldn't would know somebody after dark. <laughs> Do you think they had wine at the wedding? <laughs> maybe so. Okay, maybe so. Um, so, when Jacob decided not to return Leah, was it an act of selfishness to keep her or an act of grace? Hmm. Why do you think it's... So was it then sin for him to go and take the woman that he worked seven years for? Do we find in Scripture God chastising Jacob for multiple wives? Do we find it chastised by God anywhere? So what was the excuse with the other handmaids? There's no deception there. That was culture, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've already kind of uh, acknowledged, I think it was probably a mistake to take the handmaids, but if he didn't take the handmaids, then what would we have? Uh, eight tribes? Seven tribes? What? <laughs> how many tribes of Israel would we have if he didn't take the handmaids? How many, how many of the tribes came from the handmaids? I think God could have figured that out without them. <laughs> God could have figured that out? 
Yeah. Um, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, Life, as we all know, doesn't come sealed off in distinct and separate categories or sections. Everything impacts just about everything. In fact, Einstein's theory of general relativity teaches that all matter in the universe has a gravitational pull on all other matter. That is, your body exerts a gravitational pull not only on your neighbor, but on the sun and everything else in the created world. Thoughts about this, that everything impacts everything. How can we apply this knowledge to successful living today? Where do each of us in this room have the most power to actually affect change? I heard in our own home, I heard our own selves, our own selves. Uh, isn't, isn't that right? Who do you have authority to affect change over? And if you uh, have an Im- a gravitational, so to speak, pull on people around you, if you make changes in you, won't people around you also be impacted by that change? Not that you're responsible for how it impacts them, mind you. You're only responsible for the changes you make in self. Bottom pink section says, what things have you been handed that were beyond your control? What things have you been handed that are beyond your control? Choices of others. The choices of others? Okay, so the, the genes that you're born with. Well, the gene sequences you're born with are beyond your control. How those genes are expressed, however, are not beyond your control. The choices you make in life are altering your gene expression every day based on the choices you make. So you have a great deal to say about how that happens. Um, <clears throat> but do we sometimes believe that we can control things beyond our own choices? Do you ever fall into the illusion to think, well, I can control how this is going to turn out? Yes, this is an illusion. And, and the reason I think this is an illusion is because God's universe runs on such predictable laws. His laws are so constant, so trustworthy, so reliable, so steady, so constant. You know, the law of gravity, for instance. I mean, I think I could predict and think I can control whether this pen will hit that floor or not because the law is so consistent that if I let go, I'm going to be the one in control of what happens. Anybody know which president of the United States was the first one targeted for assassination? Anybody know? Well, I think there's a picture of him in this room. Yep, there is. Andy Jackson. President from Tennessee. It was January 30, 1835. Richard Lawrence, an unemployed house painter, approached Jackson as he's coming from a congressional funeral at the house chamber at the Capitol building. Uh, Lawrence, uh, Richard Lawrence pulls out a pistol, points it at, uh, at Jackson from within a few feet, within, within cane range. Okay, that's how close. Pulls the trigger, the gun misfires. Andy Jackson, age 67, pulls out his cane and starts whacking the guy with his cane. Okay, bam, bam, bam. While he's whacking him, a scuffle ensues and Lawrence pulls out a second pistol, points it at him and fires and it misfires and doesn't fire. And in that scuffle, Davy Crockett jumps in and wrestles uh, Lawrence to the ground and uh, subdues him. Uh, And... In the 1930s at the Smithsonian Institute, they took Lawrence's pistols, both of them, and test-fired them, and both of them on the first try fired. Now, I tell you this story because Richard Lawrence 
could control purchasing the guns. He purchased them, he does, that's up to him. He controls loading the guns. He controls whether he goes to the Capitol. He controls whether he pulls the guns out. He controls who he points them to. He controls whether he pulls the, the trigger. Could he control whether they fired or not? Evidently not. Now, because the laws are so reliable and so predictable in this universe, we generally think we can control how things will turn out. I can't tell you why Andy Jackson didn't die that day and those guns didn't fire. But the facts of history are they didn't. And sometimes we get the illusion that we can control how things turn out. Can we? Or can we control our choices? We can control our choices. We control what we choose to do. Another example from Scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They could control what they bow or whether they didn't bow. That was their choice, yes? Bow, don't bow. Bow, don't bow. Could they control what Nebuchadnezzar would do? Could they control whether Christ would show up in the fire and save them or not? No. We can't control how things turn out, but we can control the choices we make. This is what it means to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. To choose to do in governance of self that which we understand or in harmony with God's methods, his principles, his laws, and purposes for our life, and then trust him with how things turn out. I'm going to bow. I'm not going to bow to that idol. That's up to me. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to bow. Even though I know there's a threat, I'm going to go to the fire furnace, I'm going to trust him with how it turns out. I've got financial problems. I'm, uh, I'm treasurer of my church. I've got access to church funds. Uh, I, I'm being tempted. Uh, borrow, borrow a little money for this month's stuff from the church. I'll pay it back next month. This is how embezzlement is going. Or, no, not borrow. It's not mine. Trust God with the outcomes. We have responsibility over doing what's right in governance of self, not controlling how things turn out. And one of the ways the devil tricks us is he gets us to look at potential outcomes and consequences to be forecasters of the future and then planning and plotting and scheming and then making decisions so we can try to determine how things should turn out best rather than simply stepping back and saying, right, right now, right now, what is God's methods? What are his principles? What is the healthy, most reasonable decision for you to make in governance of self in this circumstance? Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. It says uh, in the last sentence of the pink, last of the pink section there at the bottom, it says, ask yourself, that's all about decision-making, right, doing the right thing and governance stuff, it says, ask yourself, how might these choices impact others? And is that what I really want to see happen? Is that a good basis for decision-making? How might these choices impact others? Well, they won't like it. They might get mad. They might hurt their feelings. They might get upset. They might, get, they might, get mad. They might not want to talk to me anymore. Should we make our decisions based on our concerns of how the decision will impact others or based on whether it's right, reasonable, healthy, in harmony with God's methods, his plans? Should we do what's right because it is right and right doing is pleasing to God? Of course, as graciously and gently and lovingly as possible, but isn't that our responsibility? Yeah. Are we responsible for how it impacts others? Husband brings home a dozen roses for his wife. He's responsible for stopping, picking up the roses, bringing them home to give to his wife. His wife says, oh, you are the sweetest man. I just love you, one possible. Uh, same moment, comes in with the dozen roses. She sees him and goes, all right, what have you done? <laughs> Is he responsible for her response? 
Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. History, huh? Possible history, huh? Maybe it's possible. But it could be from a previous relationship, not from that one that she's saying, oh, what have you done? Because in the past, where she'd been burned by God, he brought her roses every time. And that's why she's saying, what have you done? It might not be anything he's done. But it could be. You're right. It could be. So how do we fit awareness of others into our decision-making? Should we be completely oblivious? Should we ignore other people? Or is there a balance there? How would you describe the balance? Yes. You should take into consideration how, how your choices are going to affect someone or how they might feel or what they might think. But in the end, you still need to make your decision based on what's right. So you're bringing in what Paul says, let's not be a stumbling block. Let's not use our faith to put a stumbling block in front of those who are not maybe as insightful or mature in their walk yet to cause them to stumble. So we're aware that we have the freedom to do X, Y, and Z. We might choose freely not to do it, not because it would be wrong for us to do it, but because it might hurt somebody else, and that would be a way to, to cause that balance. But, we, but not doing it is not a wrong. To avoid doing something is not a wrong. So we may choose to restrict our freedoms or liberties in a certain context, which is not wrong to do, but we would, for the sake of a brother, but we wouldn't do wrong. You see, you wouldn't, for instance, I heard a sermon by a friend I, I respect uh, some years ago where they were taking literature into the Iron Block countries before the Cold War ended, and at the checkpoints, um, they asked them what they were bringing in, and they told them, we got Bibles. He said, you can't do God's work while practicing Satan's methods. You can't lie and still do God's work. And they brought. The, they told him we had Bibles, and and he described a, a, another scenario that happened. One of the some of the guys didn't shave uh, during their trip, and their beards didn't match their uh, passports, and so they they made them shave at the at the checkpoint. And all the guards got caught up in laughing and watching them shave that they forgot about the Bibles and let them run right on through. <laughs> okay, but the point is, you, you, do you agree? You can't do wrong and still do God's methods. I mean, still serve God's purposes. Yeah. Yes. The external environment, though, in which we live in, if it's an environment of freedom, I mean, I would act differently in a Muslim country than I would in a Christian country. Wisdom? In a a Muslim country. I said wisdom? Yeah. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves? I think there's wisdom in that, sure. Yeah, we we don't want to be antagonistic. We don't want to draw fire where none none is needed. Monday's lesson. Joseph and his brothers, how would you describe their relationship? The relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And what do you think contrib- contributed to the tensions? The father showing partiality to Joseph. Okay, this, this is a possibility. Father showed partiality to Joseph. Clear possibility. Joseph did not show the greatest wisdom in the way he acted toward because he was um, a complete mature adult with a prefrontal cortex that had developed and or he was an adolescent <laughs> doing teenage stuff he told these dreams when he sold how old was he when he was sold 17. 17 when he was sold so he told the dreams sometime even before that so do we expect great wisdom from 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 year olds no but do we see a lot of wild living or a good heart from joseph a good heart going there on the right path. So the, the possibility here is partiality shown. And this is exactly the, what the lesson suggests, actually. The lesson suggests uh, in the fourth paragraph, it says, finally, too, perhaps the biggest issue 
was that as uh, the Bible comes out to say, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. The brothers weren't stupid. They had surely picked up on their father's attitude, and that could have made a bad situation worse. So this is right in the last in question. This is out of Romans chapter 9, verse 13. This is God speaking here, being quoted from the Old Testament, Malachi. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jo- did God show partiality to Jacob? I mean, the, 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 it sounds very similar to Genesis here where it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his other children. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I think it was in the way that Joseph related to his father and the other brothers related very differently to their father and his religion and his God. Let's, let's see if we can't unpack that a little more because I, I think it's some good insights there. Let's start with uh, looking at the Jacob-Esau situation first. Look at God and then see if we can't look back now towards Jacob's relationship with his sons. Did God not love Esau? Or did God love Esau? Was God's love for Jacob the reason Esau rebelled? Because the lessons implying Jacob's love for Joseph may be a reason why the sons rebelled. Um, what does it mean that God loved Jacob but not Esau? What does it mean? Could it be that Jacob was receptive to God's love, so God was able to activate love in action? God loved, as in he was able to pour love upon, he was able to love in his life, he was able to act in love toward Jacob, whereas Esau's heart was closed to God, and therefore even though God had love in his heart, God could not love him in an active way. He couldn't embrace him, he couldn't hold him, he couldn't love him, because Esau's heart was closed to God. What about Jacob and his sons? Is it likely Jacob did not love his other sons? Is it possible Joseph was more receptive to God's love and therefore the natural result was a closer unity to anyone else who also had God's love operating in their heart? Thus a closer bond between Jacob and Joseph than Jacob had with the sons who remained hard-hearted and selfish. Is that possible? Tuesday's lesson says the following uh, in uh, the second paragraph. This is quoting out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 209. There was one, however, of a widely different character, the elder son of Rachel, Joseph, whose rare personal beauty seemed but to reflect an inward beauty of mind and heart. Pure, active, and joyous, the lad gave evidence also of moral earnestness and firmness. He listened to his father's instructions and loved to obey God. The qualities that afterward distinguished him in Egypt, gentleness, fidelity, and truthfulness, were already manifest in his daily life. His mother being dead, his affections clung more closely to the father, and Jacob's heart was bound up with this child of his old age. He loved Joseph more than his other children. Could Joseph's heart and character and disposition have had anything to do with why he was closer to his father than the other sons. Do you think that Jacob preferred to have ten sons he couldn't trust? Do you think he would have preferred to have ten sons just like Joseph? What about God? Does God love some people more than others? Does our response to God have anything to do with how much his love of his love we experience and thus how close we are to him? See, I found this to be true in my life. When I've traveled around the world, people who share this perspective of God 
there's a kinship, there's a camaraderie, there's a closeness, it's, it's a bond that you, you, you can just experience. There's a, there's a real, uh, versus those who, who don't, don't, those who don't come to this knowledge of, of a God of love is revealed in Jesus. Have you experienced that in your own life? Sure. It was the same Christ and his disciples. John was closer to him than the others. John had a closer unity with Christ, not because Christ loved him more, but John was more receptive to that love and thus could draw into a closer intimacy because his heart was more receptive to being molded and shaped by that love. So if that, that idea in mind, was Jacob at fault for the difference in the loving closeness he had with Joseph than the other sons? Should he not have had that loving closeness given the way Joseph's heart was and given the way the hearts of the other brothers were? Could you avoid having a closer unity with Joseph than the others given the way their hearts were? I think that that closeness is going to be there, but the mistake that he made is to, to do something that just showed, showed preference with that coat of many colors, which kind of magnified it and rubbed everybody else the wrong way. <laughs> she said it was a mistake to give the coat. And then in Tuesday's lesson it says, whatever the father meant by giving Joseph the coat, it could simply have been a token of love and nothing more. It was a big mistake. The lesson agrees with you. For it fanned even more flames of hatred in the brother's heart towards Joseph. Does it mean then that when God blesses his faithful children and it fans up the flames of jealousy in the wicked during a persecution that God is making a mistake? I mean, this is the conclusion we must draw then, right? He made a mistake giving a, 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 an item that showed, showed preference and deference and, and I, I, I bless you, I, I recognize great things in you, I recognize a, a heart of love, I want to set you apart. God set the nation of Israel apart, didn't he? With many blessings that the world didn't receive, stirred up all types of hostility in the world against them. They were under persecution constantly. God really made a mistake there. I'm just trying to play the other side of this. Hmm. Playing into the Jacob factor, though, is also the... There was the human um, preference in the heart. Rachel was his first love. These were her children. This was her child. There was already a partial love in his heart that God doesn't have because we are truly all his, and he's hoping for each one of us. So I think that there was a, an influence factor there of that, uh, that mortal element that the other brothers would have certainly picked up on and, and added into this, uh, this situation. I think that's very fair. I think it's very reasonable. Maybe it might not only have been a partial appreciation because of the child from Rachel, might there have been... I don't know, though. I mean, might there have been some disappointment with all the other sons because they weren't from Rachel? Or would a father just be proud? This is my son. I don't care. You're Leah. You're, you're one of the concubines. This is my son. Hey, in that culture, hey, this is my son. But Rachel is now gone. And who is going to be the interactor between Joseph and parenthood? It's, it's the father because the, the mother's not there. The other sons had, still had their parents. It's true. Joseph didn't have a mother. The other sons had mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So, uh, Wednesday's lesson, in the first paragraph, it says, uh, not only did Joseph's uh, brothers plot his death, they also planned in advance just what they would tell their father. Oh, father, we're so sorry. We found this coat. Is it Joseph's? If so, then a ferocious animal must have devoured him. It's hard to imagine how people could be so full of hatred toward their own brother that they could do something like this. 
Thoughts about that? Is it hard to imagine? Is it hard to imagine? When I read that, a reference popped into my mind. It's out of the book Education, page 235. We think with horror of the cannibal who feasts on the still warm and trembling flesh of the victim. But are the results of even this practice more terrible than are the agony and ruin of caused by misrepresenting motive, blackening reputation, and dissecting character? Worse than the cannibals still eating the warm flesh of their victims is this evil habit of backbiting. That was very powerful imagery, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, it popped into my mind, this brother. Aren't we brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do we assassinate and kill each other with words? Should we? So I have a real question for our class. How can we as a group put a stop to such things? How can we put an end to the cycle of unhealthy criticism and and behind-the-scenes gossip? Refuse to listen. Refuse to listen. Boys, does everybody ever find that hard? Because because you, you, you can't refuse to listen until you've listened long enough to know what you're refusing to listen to. Somebody says, I have something to tell you. They might be coming to tell you that uh, you know there's a there's a program next week we need to attend at church. Uh, I mean, they could be telling you you don't know what they're going to say till they start, and then you're halfway into it, and then you realize, whoa! I mean, they could start to or the classic examples. I love the classics. Prayer meeting. Remember to pray for so and so because her husband's been cheating on her. <laughs> you know the classics. Gossip is like a tumbleweed rolling across the desert or like a snowball that just picks up speed. And if instead of uh, adding to it and passing it on, adding as you do here in class of, hang on, let me play the other side of that, and mentally doing that or simply giving that honest response of, you know what, you're telling me this story about Jim, but I know that he's been kind to me before. He helped me fix a flat tire. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, have you talked to him about? Uh, I love. Wait, I, gotta, I just got. Yeah, I love what you just said. You said. Power word. What was the power word you used? Evidence. Evidence. Do you realize how few evidence-based thinkers there are in the world? Uh-huh. That's a great word. I haven't seen any evidence to that fact. Recently, someone suggested that they are concerned about what I teach in this class because their their concern, their hypothesis is that what we teach would lead people away from the church. That it's not, it would undermine the cores of Adventism and lead people out of the church. I didn't get offended at that concern. I said, okay, I'm okay with that if that's your concern. Can we test your hypothesis? Can we look at the evidence? I've been teaching for many, many years. Are there evidences that we could say that this has happened? People have become disenfranchised and left the Adventist church because of my class. Or have there been many people who had already left the church or back in the church now? And I know for a fact there are many that had wandered or left because of something they'd heard earlier, and this this perspective has brought them back. Um, The person who suggested this to me this week was unwilling to look at the evidence. I asked him, are you willing to look at the evidence? Are you willing to come to my class? Are you willing to talk to people who've been a part of it and see how many had wandered and gone a different direction and are now back and more committed than ever? And they weren't willing to do that because... They didn't want to look at the evidence. It was more, hey, I've looked at what you teach, and my conclusion is your teaching goes this direction, so therefore the evidence doesn't matter anymore. Um, but I like that, evidence-based thinking. I would yes. offer this uh, as a response, though, to the, the individual not willing to look at evidence, and that is if one truly looks at evidence and one truly starts approaching life with that ultimate, complete honesty, both to themselves as well as to their Heavenly Father, 
they may not be comfortable looking inside at some things that they may have tucked away for a long time. Very well said. Very well said. The hardest place to look is inward, isn't it? To look in the mirror. And what happens is, and, and that's, that's my life too, the hardest places I've ever had to look was to look at self and see the ugliness in there and then, of course, God's grace. And what, what gives us the courage to do it is to know, is to do it in the context or the umbrella of God's grace and love. And we experience and know that he already knows. And think about this if you've ever been sick and gone to a physician and you've been with a physician who was who's somebody who you, who you could tell really cared about you and, 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 and really wanted to help you. Um, you. You may have to you know, find out some news that isn't pleasant. You may have to be examined uh, in, in the inmost parts, okay? Um, but isn't it, isn't it uh, more tolerable when you know the person there really is to help you, to heal you? They're not going to judge you. They're not going to put it on CNN. They're not going to broadcast it. Whatever defects they find, they're going to use every effort they, and energy they have to fix the problem. Isn't that much more tolerable when you know that? It, would it be much more uncomfortable to have all those same defects uh, exposed if it was if you thought it was going to be publicly portrayed, put out on the news, you're going to be criticized, you're going to be judged or punished if there are any defects found? Doesn't that make it more difficult to go through such an experience? And not just tolerable, but healing. Healing, yeah, healing, absolutely. So it says in the second paragraph here, it says, the first thing the brothers talked about when they saw Joseph from afar was the dreams which uh, made their hatred for him grow. Now, once and for all, they would see what would come of those dreams. Um, why were the brothers mad? Why were they mad? It seemed like Joseph was putting himself above them. Did they want to bow down to Joseph? Did the dreams imply they would bow down to Joseph? Yeah. Um, what did they do to ensure, we will never bow down to this guy. We're going to make sure of it. What did they do? They sold him as a slave, right? And what did selling him as a slave result in? I want you to follow the logic here, guys. Remember, we're back to this whole thing about can we control outcomes? Can we control how things turn out? He's got a dream. We're going to bow down to him. Oh, we'll never bow down to you. We're going to fix it so it never happens. And we're going to sell you as a slave. See if we ever bow down to a slave. And it was selling as a slave, ultimately, that led to the cast of consequences that resulted in him being elevated to the ruler of the world, and they ended up bowing down to him. What were they focusing on? Outcomes. Making sure the future goes the way they want it to go. What would happen if they would have instead remembered they can only control governance of themselves? And they look back and say, okay, what are the quality of decisions I'm about to make right now? Am I making decisions that are based on God's principles of love, of goodness, of honesty, of truthfulness. If they would have made decisions that were designed to keep their hearts pure, even if they would have thought about what, what, is, it, what is my decision about to do to another, not even Joseph, but they would have just thought about dad. What did their decision do to dad? Yeah. I mean, come on, parents. Can you imagine the torture that dad had to go through? Wow. So I just find it interesting that they thought they could control how things turned out and their very actions started a train of circumstances that resulted in the thing happening that they didn't want to happen. Yes? There was a certain mob mentality also at work. A certain mob mentality, yeah. There's no, no question, yes. I know that the first thing they did was they took off his coat that made a distinction. I think that's the first thing we do, whether it's war 
I mean, you look what our media does with any war or with bigotry or anything else. We first dehumanize the, the victim or the intent of our malice so that we can treat them as less than human. Absolutely. No, it's absolutely right. We have to, we have to make some, uh, dis- we actually have to make a distinction that they're not like us. They're less than us, inferior to us. They, they're, they're, this is what Hitler did with the Jews. Exactly. Exactly right. So what about today? Should we try and plan and plot to ensure things turn out the way we want? Or should we merely choose to practice God's methods as best we are able, live lives to reveal him, trust him with how things turn out? Might this mean we go through some periods of uncertainty in the wilderness? Joseph spent how many years as a slave before he became ruler? Thirteen, if you didn't know. He was 30 when he finally was elevated. Thirty. You think there were some times of uncertainty Joseph had? Yeah. Any questions about this? We wonder how Joseph would have been brought to that position if he hadn't been sold as a slave. What if his dream was of that outcome? Of course it was of that outcome. Does God know the end from the beginning? God knew what the brothers were going to do before they did it. The, 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 the things didn't happen so the prophecy would come true. The prophecy was a prophecy of what God knew was already going to happen. <laughs> but did God then cause that to happen? No. If the brothers were actually going to, in reality, make different choices, there would have been a different prophecy. Does that make sense to everybody? The way the brothers were just sounded to me like what the devil did. They wanted to uh, be up more supreme than, than their brother, who had so much more than they. So, what do you think? What do you think caused the hatred in the brothers' hearts towards Joseph? Was it the dreams? Was it the coat? Was there something in Joseph that was the source of the hatred? No. Think carefully here. Was there something in Joseph that was the source of the hatred? What, what about Christ? What caused the hatred of Christ? Was there something in Christ that caused hatred? It's when one sits next to someone who is truly clean and pure, then it can highlight the soil and imperfections and either things that either they wished were different about themselves or that they hoped no one else saw. But it highlights the imperfections. Okay, so what is the source of the hatred? One's own heart of not wanting to change. Is the source in Christ or in Joseph or was in the heart of the people who had hate? I'm just trying to point this out. We often see it the other way. Now, I'm going to give you an example. This happens with my patients a lot of times. They'll have, they'll have difficulty. And, and this is a metaphor I like to use. There are some people who have these defects of character, serious problems that they don't want to look at. And, what they, and the metaphor I give is, imagine somebody who has really grotesque and ugly warts and lesions on their face. And it's really kind of disgusting to look at. And they don't like to see it either. So what they've done is they've gone through their house and they've, taken and painted beautiful pictures of themselves on all the mirrors in their home. So every time they come to a mirror, they don't see a reflection of who they are. They see this beautifully painted picture of themselves. And you come along to visit them, and you notice the mirrors are all painted over, so you pull out some Windex to start washing the paint off the mirrors. What's likely to happen? How will you be treated by this person as you start to clean the mirrors? 
Will you be treated with, a, with appreciation and affection? Or will there be hostility and anger? What are you doing? Will you be attacked for doing wrong? You're always causing trouble. You're always pointing out defects. You're always stirring up things. Nobody can ever get along with you. We hear all these allegations. Why? Now, what are the mirrors in our metaphor? Okay, first off, what are the warts on the face in our metaphor? Sins or defects of character, the things that that people don't want to take responsibility for to change and grow and overcome. Okay? What are the mirrors in our metaphor? The law, truth, rules, truth, People. We reflect back information. And, and you will find there will be very, in certain families, there will be an individual who is very manipulative and unhealthy and who will act out in certain ways so that they train everybody in the family to only give them the feedback that they want to hear. And if you don't give them the feedback they want to hear, they'll have an explosive outburst, they'll have a criticism, there'll be a hostility, there'll be a conflict, there'll be a disruption, there'll be in a, some type of... And so people learn, never say these types of things around this person, because if you do, there'll be a price to pay. And so the whole, the whole group learns to just go along to keep the peace. We just give back the information that person wants to hear. We don't reflect back what we really understand to be going on, mind you. We just reflect back the picture they want to see. The person who comes along and says, no, no, I, I don't play that game. <laughs> I, I speak you know, truth and love, will be treated as a troublemaker in the family, as a, as a hostile person, as a one who stirs up trouble. Um, has anybody ever experienced this besides me? <laughs> I see some hands. Yes, this happens. This absolutely happens. Uh, because they don't want to see any ownership or take responsibility for any of the problems that they've caused within the family. So with your analogy, when you're talking about the mirror being people, we as people, is it our place to point out the defects in someone's character? It depends on who you are to the person. It absolutely can be. Parents are mirrors to their children. Look at kids. If you want to, if you want to see this more clearly, any parent, remember when your kids were growing up. Look, mom, no hands. Okay, it's constantly look, and they're wanting to get back the feedback. Am I doing good? Am I not doing good? When we, what are mirrors physically for us? We can see elements of ourselves, see aspects of who we are in the mirror that we cannot see without the mirror. People give us feedback, uh, and, and that reflection that we see of ourselves in the eyes of our parents can be very healthy or it can be warped, just like looking in a funhouse mirror. If you look in a funhouse mirror, you can get a reflection back that has elements of truth, your color, your coat's still the same color, your hair's still the same color. But you, when you look at yourself in the funhouse mirror, it's really all warped and bent out of shape. Some people are very warped mirrors. You very warped messages. So kids growing up in homes with, uh, you know, abusive parents and stuff will get a very warped reflection coming back. So mirrors, yes, we are mirrors to people. And there are places that we do need to give that kind of feedback. Do parents need to give feedback to their kids about defects of character? But there are places it's not our place to do it either. So it really depends on who we are to the person. And that's where judgment comes in. Christ gave some direct reflections back. You are whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He was reflecting. He was being a mirror. He was, he was reflecting back exactly what they were. You're plotting to kill me. He could read their hearts. He knew, what, and he gave it to them. In the, in the, I'm sure the most gracious and loving way possible. But, but that doesn't mean it's our job to go around. I can see lots of things about people. I usually don't say anything. It wouldn't be my place. But when people come to my office, 
I often give lots of reflections back because it is my place. Yeah. Um, the last paragraph in, the les- in this lesson, it says, um, Thus, here we can see the brothers attempting to undo all the things that caused them so much hatred and anger. The coat for them symbolized all, that, all they hated about their brother, all the good things about him and the bad things about themselves. See, it's, it's kind of a mirror analogy. They can see this, this whole thing is, is bringing to attention the things they don't like about themselves. It must have been with a lot of joy, glee, and satisfaction they stripped off the coat. Now suddenly with that fancy garment with such, uh, which symbolized what they feared was Joseph's superiority over them, Joseph was helpless before those who, according to his own dreams, were one day to bow down to him. Question, was Joseph superior to his brothers? There's no's and yeses. Uh, these questions, you see, you can, go, you can argue this either way. In his own inherent birth from birth, genetically, was he superior? No, genetically he's not superior. But the individual person who stood on the earth on the day this happened, was he in any way superior to his brothers? Yes. How about his character? Was his character superior to his brother's character? Yes. It clearly was. Does he get to take ownership for this character he's developed and his own strength and might and power? Or was it simply that he had aligned himself with Christ and in so aligning himself with Christ had partaking of Christ? to a greater extent than they had and had it benefited from that experience and thus his character was in a better state of repair than theirs. So Tim, the code doesn't reflect his character because he was still who he was with, without the code. So what does the code represent? Well, it depends, on, it depends on who you're asking. What did it represent to Joseph? What did it represent to the brothers? What did it represent to the father? It represents lots of things depending on who's looking at it. To the brothers, it represents an injustice to them. We're, you're the second to the youngest. You're way down the line of uh, the birthright goes to the oldest. How dare you, you upstart, come along and get the coat? It would it represent an injustice to the brothers. So, uh, some, uh, I think it also represented, though, uh, the, um, the development of a healthy character. He was superior to them in character, and the coat was a way of, of reflecting that, depending on which way you look at it. And then the bottom talks about, uh, look how irrational the brothers' actions were as a result of their emotions. How often do we allow emotions to drive us to do irrational things? I bet no one else besides me has ever done that. Yeah. Um, but how do we keep our emotions? It says, it says in there, how can we learn to keep our emotions under the power of God and thus spare ourselves from the terrible consequences of these things? In closing, any thoughts on how we can keep our emotions under the power of God? Be a willingness to God. We have to willingly open our hands and let it go to Him. If we try to hang on to it, it will spill the best. Yes, Russell. We have to understand that emotions can be deceptive, and we have to use reason and judgment and will to make decisions. Our emotions can be deceptive. It says in James chapter 1, our feelings or emotions can lead us into temptation. Emotions are variable all the time, changing. Uh, think about the five decisions you've made in your life that if you could go back and God gave you a redo on five, you get five redos, okay? Five takeaways. And you get to undo five things. How many of the five are you going to undo, the, 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 the top five that you're undoes, those decisions that you did were based on an evidence-based, reason-based approach to that decision, and how many were emotion-based decisions? All five of mine are emotion-based decisions, guys. 
How about you? Yeah, this is the point it's making. We can't trust our emotions for good decision making. So what does it mean to bring it under the power of God? What is the power of God? Is it like some divine super energy force, like lightning bolts from the sky that we, we come to and we get like the kind of thing? Is that what it means, power? What is the power? Lisa. The mind of Christ in you. Uh, you come to the cross daily and you die to self and then you ask for God's mind to be in you. Isn't that kind of, I mean, his character in uh, healing you, his blood? I think that's exactly right. Though. So the power, according to Paul, is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. Now what is the gospel? Good news. And what's the good news? Let's just take these dominoes and run, run them right back. What's the good news? Good news about what? About God. about God. So you're exactly right. It's the truth about God that we take into our heart. We internalize. We ingest unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood metaphorically. Partaking of the truth about God as Jesus revealed. This is power. It changes us. We are changed by this knowledge as we internalize it into the heart and love it. Um, listening to the little voice. And listening to the little voice, that conviction of the Holy Spirit. Selected Messages, Volume uh, 3, page 372. It is through the word, not feeling, not excitement, that we want to influence the people to obey the truth. On the platform of God's word, we can stand with safety. This is uh, out of um, First Testimonies, page 66. I'm afraid of anything that would tend to have a tendency to turn the mind away from the solid evidences of the truth as revealed in God's word. I'm afraid of it. I am afraid of it. We must bring our minds within the bounds of reason, lest the enemy come in and set everything into a disorderly way. The truth was proclaimed, it says, through, during the early years of Christ's ministry on earth, the truth was proclaimed intelligently and so plainly that all could understand. Now I am afraid of anything of a fanatical nature brought in among our people. There are many, many who must be sanctified, but they are to be sanctified through obedience to the message of truth. I am writing on the subject today, in this message there is a beautiful consistency that appeals to the judgment. Do you find a beautiful consistency that appeals to the judgment that's evidence-based and truth-based in what we teach? And if not, then something's wrong. It should be. And we should appeal to our reason, not to our emotion. And we're, we're going to close right now. And in closing, I leave you with this to think about for this next week. She's afraid of anything. She says it four times. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of it. She keeps saying of anything that would turn the mind away from the solid evidences of the truth. Question for you guys to research this week. What are the anythings that turn our minds away from the solid evidence? I have a list in the notes that I came up with and it's more than just emotions. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth and love and that the truth always leads us back to you if we, if we embrace it and love it and follow it. The truth is always on your side. Give us minds that are sensitive to the spirit of truth. Give us hearts that love as you love. Uh, give us the ability to communicate effectively and clearly and graciously as Christ communicated when he was on earth. Lord, there's a message that needs to go to the world. May our energies be refocused on taking this message as effectively as you can enable us to this world so that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.